I think it's no surprise when we make the observation that our world is deeply broken. This morning, John Zeiser sent an article from the Wall Street Journal around to the elders by a Nigerian pastor. He was describing the systematic execution of over 20,000 Christians in Nigeria um, since 2009 by Boko Haram. And he said, you, he said, you can't protect yourself from a 10-year-old girl wearing explosives under her hijab. Next Saturday, I'm teaching an apologetics uh, seminar uh, with the Colson Fellows on the integrity of the Bible. This pastor who wrote this article is teaching apologetic seminars on whether Christianity is worth dying for and worth your family dying for when you take your stand. And then here in the United States, um, this week, pipe bombs sent to political targets. Uh, yesterday, a gunman entering a Pittsburgh synagogue, killing 11 people, shouting, all Jews must die. Our world is broken, and our country is deeply broken. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We are... I assume most of us, maybe all of us here, citizens of the United States. But as Colossians makes clear, ultimately, for those who are believers in Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. And Jesus is our king. Our confession is not Caesar is Lord, which was the first century Roman confession. Our confession is Jesus is Lord. Our prayer is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Earth's the only holdout in the universe. So, thy will be done here. So, what is God's will for us? What is God's will for believers in this broken world to shine forth as salt and light so that desperately broken and hurting people can see the grace of God in Jesus. What is God's will for you? Well, you know, I, boy, I don't have no idea. Struggling with finding God's will for my life, right? No. Romans 12 tells us this is God's will. He's very explicit about it. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. So I'm going to share with you what God's will is for your life. It begins with Romans 12, 2, and it goes through to the end of Romans 16. And everything in between is God's will for your life. That's it, right there. Very clear. Have you ever thought, I'm not sure what God's will for my life is? Well, just read those chapters, and then you'll know. They aren't hard. Applying them is hard. But knowing what they mean, that's not hard. I've entitled this study, The Believer's Horizon. I mean, how vague is that? Uh, But here's what I have in mind. The horizon is that distant curved line where the earth and the sky seem to meet. And if you're standing on a perfectly flat plane, Betsy and I used to live in Indiana when I was in grad school there. 
Um, if you are in a perfectly flat plain in Indiana, your horizon is two and a half miles straight out. But from above, everything changes. The average cruising height for a jetliner is almost eight miles. If you just go one mile above the plane, your horizon changes to 98 miles. The difference is whether or not you get your bearings from below or from above. How far does your horizon extend when it comes to holiness? Romans 1 through 11 have brought us into the heavenlies, to a place where we have a God's eye view of who we are and who he is. So the question becomes inescapable, okay, how am I now going to choose to live? How holy do you want to be? And I ask you this question from time to time, how holy do you want to be? Because God sets no limits on your spiritual horizon. Only we do that. So I'm going to review verses 1 and 2 in Romans 12, and then I'm going to move to verse 9, where Lewis left off two weeks ago. So look with me at Romans 12, 1 and 2, just to review, and we're going to be going back to these verses a lot over the next chapters because they are the framework within which God's will unfolds. Therefore, it begins... In verse 1, based on chapters 1 through 11, where God's mercy is laid out as the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, therefore, I urge you, brethren, and he's talking to believers who now know that they have a decision to make, therefore, they are urged, I urge you, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your physical vessel in which you live, a living and holy sacrifice, All the Old Testament sacrifices were dead. Because Christ died for us, we are to be living sacrifices. We're to live for him. And this is acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So if we live a holy life, that's not to be considered as unusual in the eyes of God. That's considered to be normal. That's what he expects of us, the normal Christian life. Verse 2 continues, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You know what verse 2 is? It's a summary of Romans 6 through 8. All about sanctification, about how to expand your spiritual horizon. And notice both the negative and the positive commands. Do not be conformed. Conformed means to appear on the outside what you're really not on the inside. God has made you a new creation. You're now, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but he made you alive in him. So don't be conformed to what you no longer are on the inside, but instead positively be transformed, which is the same Greek word in Matthew 17 used where Jesus is transfigured before the, before the disciples. Jesus' deity shone through, shone forth from the inside out, as it were. So what he's saying is this. Change your outward behavior to fit with your new identity, who God says you are. Now, just to clarify a little bit more 
uh, this idea of not being conformed, but being transformed, because this is, a, this is huge, and, and, and uh, it's important that we grasp this, because both verbs assume something about who we are on the inside. Both assume that you're now a new creation, that you've been redeemed, and by nature, a child of God. So don't conform, again, on the out, to appear on the outside what you're really not on the inside, but be transformed, which means to appear on the outside what you really are on the inside. Hope that wasn't too confusing. And here's something else. Both verbs are passive. That means it's something that's done to us. But we permit it to be done to us. By whom or by what? By the Word of God over us, by the Holy Spirit within us, and by the body of Christ around us. But we are urged by the mercies of God to do this. So it's clear that we choose whether or not to let this happen to us, to let the we choose whether or not to yield to the Holy Spirit's work, to listen to the Word of God, to get it plugged into the body of Christ. J.B. Phillips famously renders this verse, don't let this world around you squeeze you into its mold, but instead let God remold your minds from within. Now, when does this take place? How does this take place? Does it take place in one decisive moment where I say, okay, I'm now done. I make this commitment. No, we develop mental habit, and the verbs are continuous, by the way. Keep on doing this. We develop mental habit patterns through the Word of God over us, the the Holy Spirit within us, the body of Christ around us, to think as God would have us to think, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's this upward spiral which God uses His Word, His Spirit, and His body to develop Godly habits of living, which is our spiritual service of worship. Now, his first topic in the loving, is the loving exercise of spiritual gifts within the body around us. And that's what Lewis covered two weeks ago. Have you ever noticed, if you've read through 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 is about that. But in chapter 12, Paul passes from spiritual gifts to the topic of love. Chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. Because the fruit of the Spirit is greater than the gifts of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. And all the other thing, attributes that follow describe the outworking of love. The Bible always emphasizes godly living over the exercise of spiritual gifts. So when Paul describes the qualifications of leaders in the church, he never mentions gifts. He talks about character, godly love, the qualifications that fit with godly living. So right after Paul discussed spiritual gifts in verses 3 through 8, what's his next statement? Look at verse 9. First statement, let love be without hypocrisy. Okay, so what does that mean? I love Betsy. I love sunrises. I love mint chocolate chocolate chip ice cream. Only found it in Dallas. But though it'll be in heaven. I love dogs. I love God. But I don't mean the same thing in the way I'm using the word 
love. If Paul were to come, if we were to call Paul alongside and say, Paul, what do you mean when you say let love be without hypocrisy? What do you mean by love? What would he say? Oh, wait a minute. You know, he's already told us. Yeah. Okay, listen to this. He's already told us in Romans 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Verse 39 tells us that neither height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the pattern of love that he's talking about is God's love, which is self, if you put those verses together, self-sacrificial, generous, unconditional, persistent, not concerned with my status, not concerned with my rights. And, and you know what? If you think about that, that's enough to just stop and ponder and, and spend the whole study on. Let love be without hypocrisy. So, let's ask Paul again. How exactly would you put love into practice? Well, that's what he tells us in chapters 12 through 16. And we're going to start today with five mandates and we'll see if we get through them all, for applying godly love to one another. And we're just going to look in verses 9 and 10. The first mandate is the one that we've already started looking at. Let love be without hypocrisy. And he's talking, he's telling us about horizontal love that we're to have for one another because we've received God's vertical love, his love to us, which is self-sacrificial, generous, unconditional, persistent not concerned with my status, not concerned with my rights. We're to love one another in a way that is self-sacrificial, generous, unconditional, persistent, not concerned with my status, not concerned with my rights. And we incarnate this love, not because we find the other person worthy of receiving it, Not because we find the other person worthy of receiving it, but because God loves us that way. Are we worthy of receiving it? Thankfully, God doesn't look down at me and say, okay, Gary just passed the threshold. He's no longer worthy of my love. It's gone. I'm stop loving him. I'm going to stop loving him. I withdraw it. Our own worthiness or unworthiness is never the issue. I have never been, nor will I ever be, worthy of receiving his love. But our worthiness or your worthiness doesn't matter. God has called us to self-sacrificial, generous, unconditional, persistent love. Not concerned about my status, not concerned about my rights. Now, we see this 
mandate elsewhere in Scripture. This, this includes husbands who are willing to say along the lines of 1 Peter 3, I will live with my wife in an understanding way. It's, it includes wives who are willing to say, Lord, this is the leader that, whom you've given me and I'll respect him because you've commanded me to. It includes parents who are willing to love their children enough to teach them about the Lord and discipline them when they're wrong. It includes children who are willing, enough, willing to love their parents enough to obey them. It includes employers and employees who desire to show their love for Jesus and how they live in the workplace. The beauty of this kind of love is that it, it's self-sacrificial. It's generous. It's unconditional. It's persistent. It's not concerned with my status. It's not concerned with my rights. And there's one more thing about it. It's without hypocrisy. Obviously, what this means is we can't play at it without its being genuine. He's warning against that. It, obviously, it, you can play love, but he's saying, no, don't do that. This needs to be the real thing. And, and this qualifier, without hypocrisy, is a heart check on my motives. The word hypocrite is actually from a Greek word, hypocrites. The word referred to actors in the Greek plays. The first, and, and they would use masks to show their emotions or their character. Because women were not actors, only men, so it would show gender as well. The, the first playwright ever to use the masks was a man named Thespis. We get the name Thespian. So that's where the term came from. The Hippocrates was the one who wore a mask that concealed who they really were. They were something, they were someone different underneath the mask. So what, 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 what the point is, is they pretended to be on the outside something that they were not on the inside, which goes back to being conformed, being transformed. Your new identity in Christ needs to come through on the outside. This, this mandate is consistent throughout the New Testament. And, and, and the word hypocrite is the Greeks made it into a compound word. And I know I'm getting a little in the, into the weeds here, but they put a negative in front of it. Not hypocrite, right? Not hypocritical. And, and the, what it came to mean, it was not an actor or sincere. That's how it was translated. And you see this compound word is rare in all of literature outside the New Testament, but listen to it in the New Testament. It's translated sincere in these passages. 2 Corinthians 6, 6. In purity and knowledge and patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit, in genuine or sincere, what? Love. 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere, not hypocritical, faith. 1 Peter 1.22, I love this. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere, a not hypocritical love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So, let love be without hypocrisy. Second mandate is, abhor what is evil. That's the next phrase. 
Now, wait a minute, Gary. I thought we were supposed to love everything. No, who said that? <laughs> Sincere love does not abandon moral judgment. Our culture is just really confused with the idea that love means that you're non-judgmental. After all, didn't Jesus say, judge not? If anybody in our culture knows any verses from the Bible, that's the one they know. Judge not. But do you really think if you actually look at everything Jesus said and did with various groups that Jesus was non-judgmental? That in heaven, the judge of all the earth is going to become a big cosmic teddy bear? Jesus said this. He said, your judgment is not to be hypocritical. First, take the beam out of your own eye and then judge rightly. Here's what we mean. Love discriminates. A parent who loves their child will discipline their child. When we read that love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, this doesn't mean that love's a pushover. Rather, it means that love is positively disposed towards that object. But sometimes love has to be tough simply because you love the other person. And there are some things we're not to love. love biblical love is not blind love. Biblical love does not ex ignore biblical righteousness. Here, we are told to abhor what is evil. I, I pulled some Greek on you a moment ago. Okay, the, the Greek word abhor literally means abhor. How's that? It's a regular word for horror or loathing, and then it's intensified. We're to hate that which is evil. Love the sinner, hate the sin, right? Well, not exactly. Uh-oh. I'm going to split some hairs here, but I want to be clear and precise. We are to love the sinner, but we are to have a holy hatred for the sin in that person. When I love you, do I love the evil in you? When you love me, do you love the evil in me? Of course not. If I have anger issues, then I want you to hate that in me for my sake. If I have lust or pornography issues, then hate that in me for my sake. If I have unreasonable fear issues, I, I want you to hate that fear in me for my sake. Let me put it this way. If I truly love you, then I hate the evil in you because of what it can do to you. So, he doesn't stop there. He continues, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. This refers to the closest sort of pledge or tie. This word has some interesting um, uh, metaphors that are attached to it uh, elsewhere in the New Testament. And, and the first one is this, stick like glue. And the second one is this, wrap yourself up in. So the first one, stick like glue to what is good. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians 5, quoting Genesis 2.24, where the husband is to cleave to his wife. Stick like glue to his wife. It's, it's, it's more than a, a casual approval. This is actively committing yourself to that which pleases God. Stick like glue to what is good. If, if I'm 
if I click on something I shouldn't be clicking on, is that sticking like glue to what is good? Or is that detaching? The second picture is wrap yourself up in what is good. So that people, when people see you, what they see is what you have enveloped yourself in. Wrap your whole life up in that which pleases him. Does that make sense? That's the idea. So we read these things. We say, okay, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Nice words. There's a lot of richness behind those words where he wants you to, be stop, to stop and think about this, about becoming on the outside what you now are on the inside and how that shows up. And provides the answers for people who are hurting in this broken world. So I hope you get the picture here. This is not just a nod to what pleases God. This is sticking like glue. This is wrapping yourself all around in that which pleases God. Why? Because you love Him. Here's the fourth mandate. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So that love is to go horizontally with one another. Brotherly love. What city in America goes by the name, the city of brotherly love? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Right. And they have no crime and no murders there. It's wonderful. And, and that's actually the Greek word here, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And, and it's, it's, it's from two words. It's a, it's a compound word of companion love, phileo, and brother, adelphos. Historically, the Jews called each other brothers. But this word, this compound word, brother love, is used in a way in the New Testament that's absolutely unparalleled. The only place it was used in all of ancient literature was of physical brothers and sisters. Here, the meaning is deeper. The early, and I want you to get this, the early Christians saw themselves as a family. And that's why it's used that way here. Totally differently from anywhere else, you'll, the way that you'll find it used. They regarded themselves as a family. Do you get to pick who is your brother and your sister? Most often, not. They're born into your family. Do you love them? Yeah. Yeah. That's the norm. <laughs> What's the bond? Years of shared experience, values together, same mother, same father. Christians had a deep sense that same father, God is our father. Years of shared experience together, of sharing joys, sharing sorrows, and the knowledge that you share now an eternal relationship because we're going to be with each other in eternity. So, that's why those outside the church, when you're devoted to one another in brotherly love, can look on the inside and say, wow, see how they, finish it, love one another. Exactly. This refers to the kind of commitment to one another that results in loving actions. Encouragement, help, counsel, sharing the joys and the sorrows together. That what it, that's what it means to be a church family. So, am I devoted to you? Are we devoted to one another in brotherly love? I, I have to tell you, 
I love what I see here. I love the way that you love each other. But I would be very naive if I assumed that that were true across the board. And I always have to ask myself, am I showing love to those that I don't like? Nobody here, of course. We're to love one another, whether or not we like one another. And hopefully we like each other too. I'm going to get to the, back to that in just a moment. And here's the last mandate that we're going to look at this morning. Give preference to one another in honor. And here's how it fits with brotherly love. Godly, brotherly love subordinates the interest of the one who loves to those of the one who is loved. Let me repeat that. Brotherly love, godly love, subordinates the interest of the one who is loving in favor of those who are being loved. That's what it means to give preference to one another. Now I want you to hold your place here and turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, because the first five verses in, cha- I'm sorry, chapter 2, the first five verses give a commentary on giving preference to one another in honor. And once you see this, you'll say, oh, okay, I get it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he describes what that looks like doctrinally in the incarnation, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But the point that he's using Jesus to illustrate is that we have Jesus' attitude when we show uh, brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. Now, one application of this command would be to give each other a best-case interpretation instead of a worst-case interpretation. so many ways that we can do this you know somebody cuts in front of you and uh on on the road and what is your attitude towards that person and what do you want to say and and what do you want to get in front of them and block them and you have that road rage compulsion maybe maybe you should stop and think i wonder or, or, or let your, the possibility roam into your mind of a best-case interpretation. They just heard that their mom fell, and they're on their way to the hospital. And you know what? They might be. You, you just don't know what's going on. When a, when a, uh, a waiter or a waitress uh, is uh, surly, and you want to give them the Christian tip, a penny and a tract, Hopefully you do not do that. 
But if, when a waitress, waiter or waitress is, is surly, this happened actually to me when I was with a friend. Um, it was a waitress and she was just awful. And uh, finally, my friend that I was eating with said, you know, looks like it's been a busy day for you here. Has it been hard? And she just said, oh, you don't know. The woman who was supposed to uh, be here, uh, take my place, uh, didn't show up. This is my second shift, and I have a child at home that's by herself, and I need to be there. And, you know, you don't know. You don't know. Well, how much more should we give one another a best-case interpretation? Did you really, did they mean it like that? Uh, it, Instead of looking for slights, assume that they didn't mean it the way it may have sounded. If you, if you find yourself fantasizing about conversations when you really get her or really put him down, then uh, your mind is in the wrong place. <laughs> you're nurturing bitterness against God's child, which means you're nurturing bitterness against God. Why do you persecute me, said Jesus. And that's a far cry from giving preference to one another. The body of Christ is not a set of activities that you join, but a group of people to whom you belong. And your commitment, our commitment to each other isn't based on attraction or similar backgrounds. You can get that in a social club. It's based upon being saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ, which makes us a family together, a brothers and sisters in him. And sure, there are going to be some people that you feel an immediate connection with, you connect. And there are going to be other people who may grate on you a little bit or a lot. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Give preference to one another in honor. But Lord, they won't change. So what? My responsibility is to love them, and that's not by one bit diminished. And the best loving action that you can do, that you can, to really put them, in, you want to put them in their place? Here's how you do it. Pray for them. I've told you this story before. I had a friend in, in seminary who, um, his name is Tom Paul. And I'm trying to get Tom to come here and preach at the end of November. Um, he's going to be in, in town area. He has cancer. I'm not sure he's going to feel like it. But um, he was my best bud in seminary, and we've remained friends uh, for over 40 years, 45 years. He's now a pastor in Canada. But we were, we were in class. You know, you know, some friends you really connect with, but when you leave them, you don't feel closer to the Lord. You feel maybe further from the Lord. That's not a healthy friendship, even if you're both Christians. Some friends... When you leave them, you feel closer to the Lord. They've encouraged you in, in biblical ways. That's Tom. So we, there was a, a guy in our class, and this is a story I've told you before. He was very annoying. Um, uh, his name was Walter. I'm going to call him that because that was his name. And uh, he would take up every class with about... 10 minutes of totally irrelevant questions. So I lost probably three months of the four years of seminary to Walter. Of the four years. So, and, and he would do it, he would always sit in front. 
And he always had this absolutely erect posture. And he would raise his hand like this. I mean, raise your hand like that. And he had a comb that he would pull out every three or four times during each class. And okay, I had an attitude. So Walter would, and I was, I was uh, sharing my annoyance with Tom. And Tom said, you know, Gary, we should probably pray for Walter, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> and so we made a pact together. Whenever Walter would do that or pull out his comb, okay, Lord, be with Walter. Be with his family. Help him to learn what it is he wants to know now and uh, give him grace and peace in his life. And, you know, I found that uh, after a few weeks, Walter was less annoying. He was less irritating. And uh, one day after about a year, I walked into the student cafeteria. Walter was a married student. He was off campus. He usually ate elsewhere. I walked in the student cafeteria, and there sat Walter, and all the other tables were taken. Yeah. So I sat down with Walter, started talking to him, <clears throat> found out this guy's from a horrible background. Horrible. Horrible. And his life is hard, and uh, everything, there's nothing good in this man's life. That, uh, uh, nothing that's easy. And then uh, I left him understanding a whole lot more about Walter. And I, I left him and headed down to the mailroom. But Walter got up and followed me because he wanted to continue to talk and he had somebody who listened to him. And then I went into the bathroom and Walter followed me. <laughs> he continued to talk. Okay. And the relationship changed. I'd like to tell you that Walter and I became great friends. We didn't. <laughs> But the Lord worked on my heart through that process. And uh, when we graduated, there were these awards at the end of the four years for categories of excellence. And Walter got the theology award, which annoyed me no end. <laughs> but those stupid questions weren't stupid. I just didn't know. I was the stupid one. So, if you have an issue with a brother or sister, especially in this church, but anywhere, fix it. Pray for them. Pray for one another. I'm leaving this passage in progress. We'll return to it next Sunday. But I want to make a couple of comments before we go to communion. I'm going to go ahead and ask the men to come forward and take their seats make a couple of comments. Uh, when you look at the way these mandates are shaping up, there is not an inch difference between any of them. 
Can you see that they're all heading in the same trajectory? All heading in the same direction. And that direction is loving one another with God's love. Some passages in Scripture are hard to understand. These are not hard to understand. These are hard to apply. And you make the decision about the trajectory of your spiritual life. Either you extend your spiritual horizon or you spiral downward. There's no plateau on which you can rest and say, okay, I think I'll just stop here. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. How do I live this way? It's not natural. It's supernatural. But God works through his word over us, his spirit within us, and the body of Christ around us. How holy do you want to be? Here's the good news. God will set no limits on how holy you can become. So let's take a moment for silent prayer before we go to communion. First Corinthians 11 tells us to approach this table with clean hands. If there's any sin between you and the Lord that you need to confess to him, take a moment, ask him to show you things that may, may be hindering your full fellowship with him. Ask him to confess, uh, to, to forgive you of your sins and, uh, and uh, uh, just prepare your hearts and your mind to receive communion. Let's take a couple of moments of silent prayer.